Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I really can't complain about anything. Uh, it's great to be here recording, setting up this great conversation for the listeners. But my overall concern is how you are today, Tim. <laughs> well, thank you very much for asking. I am doing really well. I'm excited to speak with our friend in this podcast field. His name is Chris Williamson. He does several podcasts. Check the show notes for the links on all of them. Um, but we were guests on one of his podcasts recently. It's called Me and My Friends. But Lance, Chris wrote a new book. It's called Rabbit Hole, The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. And it's being released July 2nd, 2022. Be sure to go to Amazon and search for Rabbit Hole, Vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan by Chris Williamson. You won't be disappointed. For all of you who know Chris Williamson's obsession is Amelia Earhart, Fred Noonan, and locating some sort of evidence of their whereabouts. Definitely swing by Amazon to pick up your copy of Rabbit Hole, The Vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. You can just simply search that title and it will come up. For those of you who know Chris Williamson's work, he covers Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan in glorious detail and explores that disappearance in remarkable depth. So make sure to check out Chris's podcast. It's called Vanished. And check out intotherabbithole.net and you can get a book directly from Chris. You can even get a signed version right there from his website. And Tim. Yes. You know who is not going to get lost this summer traveling? Who? You and I. Really? And Patrick Hines and Maggie Freeling. I feel like we'll still get lost. We might get yeah. a little lost, but I hope that Chris Williamson will not have to write an extensive book on us. <laughs> That's right, Lance. We are hitting the road with Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed and Maggie Freeling. We're going to be speaking about the Oxygen documentary, The Disappearance of Maura Murray. And Lance, of course, we were a part of that documentary, so we get roasted pretty good in these five tour dates these five different cities starting august 3rd in orlando florida and then we move on to atlanta georgia on saturday august 6th take a little break and then where are we next st paul minnesota august 18th want to be sure to let people know that is a new date that is thursday august 18th it was moved and then we're down to texas dallas texas is our next stop saturday august 20th where do we wrap it up, Tim? We wrap it up Sunday, August 21st in Houston, Texas. We hope to see you there. You can get your tickets at truecrimeobsessed.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the podcast, author Chris Williamson. How are you tonight? Uh, I am feeling pretty honored tonight. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate this. 
It's so cool because we get to actually say that old cliche, we knew you back when, and <laughs> we knew you before you were a published author. Um, fantastic work. Uh, your book comes out in just a couple of days. We're recording this on June 28th, and your book comes out July 2nd. So right. we'll probably have you on maybe a live show down the road after your book's um, had time to mature mature out there in the public, and uh, people can consume it. But um, yeah. what have you been up to? Because uh, we were talking previously about numerous mysteries mostly amelia Earhart, but uh mm -hmm. yeah thanks for joining us tonight and and you know before we get to the book like how's th how's everything going it's going well man it's it's been a roller coaster it's been a rough especially last couple of months sort of getting to the finish sort of slogging to the finish line so to speak and trying to pass the finish line for this release but it's been it's been good it's been a learning experience and you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it, but uh, it's, it's been really, really interesting in the last couple of months, especially. Great. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about that, but before we get into that, tell us about your podcasts and uh, we were recently guests <laughs> yeah. on your podcast. Yes. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Tell us about, uh, yeah. about your podcast projects. Yeah, well, and I'll start with what you guys guessed it on because I, I never really talk about this this show publicly really too much um, on other people's shows. But I have a show called Me and My Friends, and it's basically just like a little side passion project that I've been doing for a while. We we sort of we finished up what's really season two now um, of the show, and you guys were kind enough to guest on it. And um, it's sort of a show. It's it's kind of like Joe Rogan esque, but not as you know not as long, obviously conversation wise. But we do have some pretty long long sort of shows that we do and i just have people come on people i admire people whose work uh are i'm very impressed with who you know questions that i have burning things i've always wanted to cover uh, i've sort of been known as the Earhart guy and so it's been hard to get outside of that realm but i had this idea for the show a long time ago and the show uh was sort of just a, an excuse really i just kind of created it for selfish reasons to talk to all my people i admire and that's that's one show i do and the show that I'm probably most known for is, is a little show called Chasing Earhart that's been uh, around for quite some time now. We recorded about 100 episodes of that show, and uh, we're tossing the idea around of sort of bringing back a, a, it, you know, that show in a limited run. Um, and then we do a show called Vanished that we just finally wrapped season two on, and Vanished originally was going to be just a, a short series on Amelia Earhart, like an investigative sort of a, a, a deep dive. And it, it turned into a thing. And now we've got a second season full of cases that are not Amelia Earhart. And we announced a season three. We don't have an ETA and when that's going to happen, but we've got another stacked list of cases for season three. And we've now, I've now got these books, the first of which, of course, is always going to be Earhart. That's sort of my, my, uh, my lifeblood and sort of my, uh, my favorite case of all. And so that's the first book we have out. And when you say we... Who's this we you speak of? <laughs> well, so that's a good question, actually, because I, I say it naturally because I've always been sort of part of a this this team. And the, I always look at my wife as sort of my second uh, partner and my, my partner in this whole thing. And she's pushed everything for since the beginning and sort of got behind me, even on this book, when I, I seriously for a little while considered just tanking the book and not putting it out just because of a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And so she is always the other half of, of we. And of course, I, I, I sort of, I don't speak for her, but I do mention Jennifer in that we, because she is such a big part of Vanished now and, and is such a big part of my life on a professional level. And so, yeah, I just kind of look at it as like a really a team effort in a way. 
Um, that's kind of how it works. So I always say we. Very cool. Not me. I say I all the time. I, 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 and me. That's it. I, I, I. Yeah. It, I, it, right. it feels like that sometimes. It feels like, man, I'm, I'm, where's all the we, you know, every time I say that, but it's like, yeah, they're, they're doing stuff behind the scenes and helping in areas that I could never fathom touching as far as like, you know, uh, collaborating air, uh, things and sort of like project coordination and just all these events we do and these things that, that I, I try to sort of get out in front of and be the face of, but it's, you know, it's, it's really powered by, by my wife and, and in part by Jen in some cases. Yeah. Very cool. And I know that Jen wrote the foreword for your new book, Rabbit Hole. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how this book got published. I uh, have been following <laughs> your, your Twitter feed and uh, it was yeah. a bit of a roller coaster there. Yeah. Sort of changing abruptly. And uh, so, yeah, mm -hmm. w what's the story? Oh gosh. So how do I say this? Uh, so we, we had a publishing contract with a, a, a lovely publishing company beyond the fray. Uh, they're, they're wonderful. Uh, Shannon and Jeff from beyond the fray, they've been amazing. And they signed me to a, a publishing contract about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I had already been about a year, maybe a little over a year into editing the book and sort of trying to put a, a written transcript of season one together. I had this idea for this book, and I, I really wanted to it sort of was birthed out of the idea of people just asking me, hey, we'd really love to have a written version of what you guys are recording for back then season one. And we just started getting more and more requests for that. Our audience, we have a, a, a pretty large audience that doesn't really uh, they're, they're not techno, you know, technical when it comes to like, you know, going to a website, listening to audio or downloading an app and listening to a podcast on an app. So we have a lot of people that want to hold something in their hands. They're sort of come from that old school sort of library, you know, archive style, and they want to hold a book. And so we just started getting a little bit more traction on that. And all of a sudden it, it just sort of seemed possible. And so I started working on this book and like a lot of things, I didn't realize how mountainous it was. And um, I was into sort of the process when Beyond the Fray came aboard, I pitched them the book on the idea that it would be sort of the the birth of sort of the, the their historical mystery wing of their publishing house because uh, up to that point they'd done a lot of you know bigfoot a lot of paranormal a lot of stuff like that and i thought oh, this would be a great you know great opportunity for them and for me and we got into it we worked on it together for a long time and about i'd say about almost two months ago now maybe maybe almost two months ago i got a uh, an email from them or they reached out to me and said hey there's there's this there's this guy who is essentially claiming that uh, I stole his IP. I stole his intellectual property. I stole his like a lot of stuff from him, which is obviously it was very blatantly false. And I was sort of really taken aback by that because this was a guy that while I haven't talked to him in a very long time, uh, at one point was a very close ally of and pushed him and pushed, you know, his website, his documentary, all of his work, all that stuff. And I sort of felt like he sort of turned on me and uh, he uh, is knowledgeable and he sort of knows sort of how to throw a monkey wrench into a plan, so to speak, for to, to put it very lightly. And so he he made some behind the scenes moves that I think sort of influenced Beyond the Fray to sort of step away because they didn't want to get involved in something that was going to be uh, problematic for them to, to their credit. Of course, they were very professional and kind and respectful the whole time, but they decided to part ways with me, uh, amicably. And we did that. 
And uh, so I was left with about three weeks or so to take a book that was about 90% done for the most part and turn it into a self-publishing process and try to scramble to make the original date. Because as you guys had seen, they sort of went pretty hard on trying to trying to sort of advertise this as their their first venture. And this is sort of a departure from what they do. We had multiple sort of uh, events lined up and dates lined up for, for book tour and, you know, signings and lectures and all that jazz. And it, it sort of just the bottom fell out, like with weeks left. And I had to scramble to, to not only to finish the book and to finish uh, formatting and go through the process, but I had to put the book out. And I'm, I'm very honored and blessed to be able to say we made it by the skin of our teeth. We're able to put the book out as planned because July 2nd, was is very important to me. It always has been. It's it's the anniversary of their disappearance of Earhart and Noonan's disappearance. It's the 85th anniversary this year. It's a big one, and uh, I'd always been sort of drawn to that date. And I'm a big fan. If you follow the show, we're I'm a big fan of anniversaries. Like that's putting out stuff on anniversaries. That's a big deal. We did it with DB Cooper, uh, with the 50th anniversary, uh, and we'll continue. We did that with John Wilkes Booth, and so on and so forth. So, to make a very long story short. It was a very stressful process, but we're able to put the book out. We've self-published it. Uh, I've held a couple of copies in my hands. It's gorgeous. It's for self-publishing and for last minute. It's about as beautiful a book as you can imagine. And uh, we're very proud of it. To my knowledge, <laughs> I'll say this, uh, preface this, it's the, it's the largest um, written effort ever put out on an Earhart, uh, on the Earhart case. It's like over 800 pages. And it's, it's this huge thing with 50, almost 50 people collaborating across all legacy realms and across all theory realms and all that to sort of bring you the story, the, the definitive telling of the story and to give you a really good, a, a, really a large snapshot of the case. So you can sort of go off and do your own, you know, research and, you know, what, what theory convinces you. And we sort of took the same format that we did with the show and put it into a book form. And, and here we are three days away from release finally. So we're, we're almost there. Well, damn, good for you. Yeah. Good for you for, for picking up what could have just been the rubble that was left. And and yeah. you didn't even have you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to self publish. You could have gone on a apology style, you know, media mm -hmm. tour and said, you know, this unforeseen circumstances and we we're not gonna make make the deadline. So yeah. well done yeah. doing that. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm just really curious, like how did you find did you like go to a publishing company how does that work yeah so i'll, I'll give a shout out because i'm i'm nothing without the people that have, have helped and supported me i'll give a shout out to a, a wonderful woman her name is aaron miller she wrote a, a book called final flight final fight and it's all about her grandmother and the wasp and she had self-published she's very well known in the in the self-publishing community she's really done it she's done multiple books now i had reached out to her through another very dear friend of mine, Jill Myers, who's also in the book and who was worked with me on Earhart. And she sort of connected me and we talked and Aaron sort of was able to pull me back from the brink of, of publishing disaster and say, no, this is actually what you can do. Here's a couple of options. And she laid out a, a company called Ingram Spark, who does a lot of self-publishing. That's right in their wheelhouse. That's what they do. I was very ignorant of that. And I had to sort of learn that process and make some mistakes along the way and sort of have some panic. But I feel like Looking back on it now in retrospect, I feel like panic has sort of always been part of my process. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where you have to sort of like freak out for a, a little bit and then, okay, I've gotten that out of my system. Now let's, now let's pick up the pieces and push forward. So a big shout out to Aaron Miller, uh, a big shout out to Jill Myers. And of course, my wife, who literally said, you are not stopping this. You are going forward 
And uh, those three women, um, you know, are why we're here, why we're talking about this. If I hadn't had them involved in it, it would not have happened. I would have given up clearly. I mean, I've, there's, there's even early, earlier times when I was writing this thing and I just decided, well, maybe it's better if I just release this thing as like a PDF for free to everybody and just kind of, you know, call it a day. But I, you know, I'm happy I can hold it. It's, it's overwhelming. The feeling is overwhelming when you hold your first book for the first time. It's, it's a really special feeling. Can't replicate it. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So tell us a little bit about the case. Treat us like we're noobs, Chris, and we don't know <laughs> anything about the case. Uh, and, and in fairness, that's pretty much exactly what we are anyway. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that, but I, I will I will <laughs> oblige. Uh, so Amelia Earhart is an icon. She is still there's an Amelia Earhart day at NASA. Still, she's a, a, an icon in, in not only in aviation but aerospace and STEM. She, in the 1930s, 1920s and 1930s, she came up in aviation and she flew for a very short period of time, broke probably over two dozen records uh, that are now since been broken or, or replaced. But at the time she had broken all these records in the golden age of aviation. She walked away from 11 crashes in her career. She flew all kinds of different airplanes, flew in air derbies, and she sort of became the face for women in aviation. And in a lot of ways, she's still the face of women in aviation. If you reach out to anybody now and say, give me a female aviator, everybody's going to say Amelia Earhart. No one's going to say Florence Klingon Smith or Ruth Elder or Ruth Nichols or any of those people. They're going to say Earhart. So Earhart was married to a gentleman by the name of George Palmer Putnam, who was a basically a super publicist. He had published uh, Charles Lindbergh's autobiography who if you know aviation charles Lindbergh's probably the the biggest icon of all in, of aviation and he was looking for a, a woman a female version of charles Lindbergh. he sort of saw the writing on the wall before anyone else and that's to his credit and he synced up with Earhart first as a business partner and then he asked her to be his wife uh multiple times she finally said yes they got married they had a pretty uh important uh, run as far as aviation is concerned. She broke a lot of records with him in tow and with him as part of it and publishing along the way. And it's through Putnam that Earhart sort of uh, uh, gets this Lockheed Electra that everybody talks about now, this world famous Lockheed Electra that's still missing 85 years later. And Purdue finances her, her Lockheed Electra and they finance in part her world flight. She's, she wants to sort of end her career with a bang. And she wants to go out uh, by circumnavigating the equator and going around the world um, equatorially. And she largely accomplishes this. And on July 2nd of 1937, which is in three days uh, to the day, uh, she and her navigator, who was a gentleman by the name of Fred Noonan, were on approach to a little tiny island called Howland Island. I encourage people listening to Google Earth Howland Island. It's, it's remarkable. And off the coast of Howland, uh, laying in wait was this little Coast Guard cutter called the Itasca. That's also very famous now with, with, in, in association with this case. And they're attempting to guide her in so she can re land at Howland, refuel, and then make the final leg of her, of her trip, which was from Howland to Hawaii and then from Hawaii to Oakland. So she was 99% there. She was almost there. And on that morning, there's a host of issues that occur. 
She never can make two-way radio communication with the Itasca. So they're laying in wait off Howland. They're trying to signal her. They're constantly talking to her. She's constantly talking to them, but they can never establish a connection. So she's, as she's getting closer, what appears to be closer and closer to Howland, she appears to be getting more and more frantic because she hasn't heard from them. And, uh, and she's starting to freak out and she's starting to tell them it's in the radio logs. There's actual radio logs that they're the Coast Guard radio men in the radio room are actually writing down what she's saying or, or typing out what she's saying shorthand. And she's saying things like, we must be on you, but cannot see you. Gas is running low. We're about 200 miles out. We're about 100 miles out. So she's giving them like a, a rough estimate. We're on the line 157337, which is a celestial, which is a sun line trying to give them a position, but they don't really know where they're at exactly. She's got Noonan on board navigating. He's using celestial navigation. Keep in mind, this is 1937. There's no GPS. There's nothing other than just guiding by the sun, guiding by the stars at night. And, you know, if you make one minor mistake, you could be off by hundreds of miles. I mean, you could be in the the middle of the, the biggest, you know, ocean on the planet. So, She's frantically calling. The Itasca can't get a hold of her, and she's getting closer. And all of a sudden, or her last word is "wait." That's the last word that she ever says. And the Itasca marks that as a word that she said. And that's the last we ever officially hear from Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. Now they go down. There's this monstrous search in the middle of the Great Depression. They're searching, I think, three or four million dollars of worth of money to search for Amelia Earhart, and they give up. Obviously, a couple of weeks later, because they can't find her. And she's declared dead in absentia uh, on January 5th of 1939. And almost immediately after she's declared dead, really just theories abound. So she starts, there's all these different theories about, well, maybe she didn't crash in the ocean off Howland Island. Maybe she was here. Maybe she was there. And so as the story unfolds, theories start to come into play. And that's when you start hearing stuff about maybe her being in on a government plan, maybe her being a spy, maybe her being captured by the Japanese, maybe her landing on an island 400 miles away uh, and dying as a castaway. And then there's literally a half a dozen others, if not more. Um, And we in the show sort of covered, um, originally covered five theories in the book, we cover four. And that is uh, sort of in a nutshell, that's sort of the story as we know it. And they're, they're still searching for her. There are deep water uh, ocean searches that are go back to, I think 99 was the first one. And from there, they've been, everybody who's anybody who's, who's has deep pockets has thrown their hat into the ring to search off the deep oceans of, of uh, Howland Island. They've been to Nicomaroro 13 or 14 times. Uh, lastly, with uh, Bob Ballard and tow who found the Titanic. So he's, you know, it's about as big a name as you can get in nautical exploration as Bob Ballard. And they, everybody struck out. So right now, 85, just shy of 85 years later, really we're no closer uh, to the truth or to having any more information concretely than we do after July 2nd of 1937. So it's, it's really the biggest rabbit hole you can think of. And it's got at the center of it, probably the, the biggest, one of the biggest aviation icons, if not the biggest aviation icon ever. I'm going to ask what might seem on the surface to be uh, maybe a superficial question, uh, but I think it just strikes curiosity in me because I know how much work you've put into researching her life and her death and yeah. even the way she went about her aviation career and the type yeah. of pilot she was. What do you make of the last word? What, what is your personal opinion? What do you think that was indicating? I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. I've thought about that. 
I've thought about, and as a matter of fact, it, it, it is, we don't have any spoilers in the book or anything, but the very last page of the book is, is sort of an Easter egg. I, I just, the word wait is on the very last page of the book. And I, so I have thought about that before in a way, my wife puts it really better than anybody else. We're still waiting. Everybody's still waiting to find out what she meant by that. Is she saying, wait, we found land, wait, we see something that, you know, we can't, I want to say can't explain, but, you know, we see something different or we see something that we're, you know, we're going to try to figure it out or that made it might've been just the last word she sort of spat out of her mouth as she was putting the plane down. She did say, indicate that they were flying at a thousand feet. My best guess for that is that they were trying to do something called a pancake landing, which is basically in the water. It's, you know, if you, obviously if you hit the water from far enough up, it's like hitting cement, but they're trying to put the water, the, the plane down in the water as, as gingerly as they can. And a lot of people that have researched it say that that plane, if put on the water properly, would have been like a ping pong ball with the wings, especially with all the, the fuel tanks, the extended fuel tanks in it and everything. Um, we don't know what weight means, but I, I look at it as, as really not a superficial thing. I look at it as like the world still waits, you know, to find out what happened. We're still waiting. And whether people are, it's sort of like the, the double meaning of chasing your heart. I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but chasing your heart is really a double meaning for some people are chasing the legacy and some people are chasing the disappearance. And so everybody's chasing Earhart in some way, shape, or form, regardless of what you care about or where you put your stock in, uh, you know, in the case or in the theory. So wait really is to me is, is like a, a really powerful final word uh, for, for anybody. And I think for her, especially in, in, in the situation we're in, I think that's, it's kind of beautiful and poetic and tragic at the same time. See, no softballs here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a strong, it's a strong final word. And I, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's special for many reasons. Cause we don't know, we, we don't know what happened to them. We have no period on the end of this sentence. We have no idea. There's no wreckage. There's no record of, of other than just that Atasca call log and what happened to them. They could be very well, 18,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. That plane could be pristine. If, if I've learned anything by talking to the people that have been doing deep ocean searches and the, the brightest minds on the planet, everything in that type of nautical environment is pretty pristine. So if she's able to put the water, the plane on the water successfully, or even halfway successfully where it sinks, that, that plane is going to be in pretty pristine condition if it's found, but you're looking at, you're looking for a roughly a 39 and a half foot plane with a 55 foot wingspan in the middle of an area that's roughly the size of Texas. Uh, with ROVs that are costing you three to $4 million a day to, to search it, to search down there. And so how expensive, how much money do you want to throw away? Someone's going to have to take someone like, like, like a Jeff Bezos or someone that's got all these money that say, what, what do you need? A hundred million dollars. Here you go. Like, let's, let's just do it to them. It's nothing, you know, it's going to, it's going to take, if it's a deep water search, it's going to take something like that because it's very expensive. And, um, people are, people are still searching in multiple theories right now, not just in the ocean, but everywhere. So you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance. I really believe, I really believe this, we'll, we'll put this to bed in, in our lifetime. I really believe somebody will find something, you know, whether it's in the ocean or whether it's in an archive, I think we got a taste of that back in 2017 with something that's really infamous now called the Jaluit Dock photo. I think we talked about this once uh, about what Les Kinney found in the National Archives. It's going to be something like that. And you guys have talked to Eric Eulis, who I'm a, I'm a big fan of. He was on our Cooper podcast. Oh, cool. And Eric Eulis actually gave us, uh, probably has nothing to do with the Earhart case, but just with historical mystery in general, probably gave us the most powerful piece of testimony we've ever had on the show. 
Um, and he was able to sort of talk about, you know, um, him championing a, a certain suspect and then having to sort of pivot on that and admit to himself and admit publicly that maybe he was wrong about a certain suspect. That's very difficult to do in these historical mystery cases, especially in the Earhart case. I think we can all sort of take a lesson from that if we're looking at these types of cases about, hey, you know, maybe you can pivot. Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you can work very hard on something and be wrong. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's basically what's sort of potentially happening here with someone's going to be wrong. A lot of people are going to be wrong. Only one person's going to get this or one group's going to get this likely. But I think that's how you're going to see it. It's either going to be pulled out of the water on a dogged, you know, deep ocean search and someone's going to just get really lucky on where they're going to sort of call it for where the plane might be, or it's going to be found in an archive. It's going to be very, it's not going to be as my, a friend of mine, Buddy Levy, who was on the show, he says, it's not going to be sexy. It's going to be like in an archive. It's going to be like one line of dialogue or one line in a, in a, in a re previously redacted document or something that's going to like crack the whole thing wide open. And I think that's, that's how you're going to find out. It's either going to be deep ocean like that, or it's going to be some crazy small little crack that's going to blast it wide open. But I think we'll get it in our lifetime. I think the people involved will get it in our lifetime. I think you're going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to be associated. I'm going to be associated through just being a fan of the people who are going to do it. I think like there's, <laughs> gotcha. there's, there's so many, there are so many, you know, there, I, I one thing I've learned, it's, it's not like a, a, a dig against myself or anything, but literally I'm the least knowledgeable person on this case. Believe, I, I mean, that's really truth. I mean, when you talk to some of the people that have been doing this for 30, 40 years of their lives, you know, it's, they can run circles around me on this, you know, they could, they could do it easy. And I think those are the people that are, those are the people that are looking. So it's, it's in good hands, I think. And uh, you know, you've got multiple theories, multiple active investigations. You're going to see some really crazy fun announcements happening in the next like six months on this case. That's really going to, you know, put it right back into the spotlight. And that seems to happen every so often. You guys are pretty familiar with DB Cooper. Now, you know how that works. Like every so often something happens and it breaks something open and another theory is introduced or another suspect's introduced or whatever the case is, Earhart's going to be the same thing. And I think you'll see that probably inside of six months. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but you know, that optimism only takes you so far. There's got to be action. So we'll see what happens, you know? And I think a lot of these people that are searching for her uh, are, are, are very passionate and that's, that's a big part of it. Okay. So you mentioned the people that are searching for her are very passionate in their search. Is there a particularly fanatical or rabid fan base when it comes mm -hmm. to her disappearance and getting theories emailed and, you know, maybe there's like forums where people go back and forth. Is that something that you're a part yeah. of? Does that exist? Yeah, kind of. Uh, and, and you're, you guys are certainly no stranger to this and the work you've done, but with Earhart, yeah, there's absolutely um, a radical fan base. And it's like I said, it's sort of split down the middle. So you're either going to chase the legacy. Or you're going to chase the disappearance. The disappearance itself almost has its own internal legacy because there's so much, there's so much going for that disappearance. There's so much infighting. There's so much, uh, you know, everybody's split into little camps. There's very little cross collaboration. And I've said this before, there has been not only in the Earhart case, but since we're talking strictly about Earhart right now, there is really has been like, it's a spectacular collapse of, of any kind of collaboration in this case whatsoever. And you have all these people that are sort of defending their theory and it gets really aggressive. I've, I've been, I don't want to say a victim, but I've been on, I've been on the other side of that. As I mentioned earlier, just recently, it gets aggressively defensive 
And you guys, I'm sure you guys aren't any strangers to that with the stuff you guys have done. So you know what I'm talking about. It's that's exactly how it works. And the Earhart case, you know, you've got five, four or five major theories. You've got a bunch of sub theories. You've got everybody arguing for their stuff. Everybody's wrong. I know the truth. This is pure truth. This isn't a theory. I hear that four or five times a week. It's one of those situations where it's like, okay, it's all theory. And that's sort of what we're shouting you know, at the mountaintops of this plan. It's like, it's really, it's all theory until you guys change the way you approach the case. And until everybody changes the way they handle this, it's likely that's the only thing that's going to keep it from ever getting solved. You know, my optimism on one side is great because of who's involved and how they, how they work and what they do. But at the same time, I think the invite, the infighting and all the behind the scenes drama is absolute poison to this case and to every case. Uh, D.B. Cooper included, Jack the Ripper, every, you know, everything we've ever covered and will ever cover is going to have some degree of that. And um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of always been my position is people need to just sort of stop with that. It's been 85 years and nobody's found anything and that hasn't produced anything. So now it's time to change the game and to 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 change how you approach things. And I, I think you're starting to see a little bit of that now. There's some faces that have entered the fray. That, have, that are sort of have fresh attitudes and fresh approaches to this. I'm not, you know, excluding myself. I believe wholeheartedly that that's how you got to solve it. But there's people that are actually doing the work that are saying, look, let's collaborate. Let's reach across the aisle. Come help me, you know, work on mine or eliminate mine. And then we can move on to the next one. And I think that's a breath of fresh air that this case badly needs after 85 years. Tell us a little bit about the choice to call the book Rabbit Hole. Because we mm. use that term a lot when people get caught up and when we get caught up in these yeah. cold cases, it's always a rabbit hole for the most part. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I have a feeling that your title wasn't arbitrary <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in yeah, the sense yeah. that, you know, it's a case that you just kind of get caught up in. I believe that yeah. it's probably a little more layered. Yeah, it's 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 a very uh, it, it's well, it's first it's for a practical reason. It's the definition of what this case is. Uh, this case people will get into it, like I said, on the legacy side, and they'll get swallowed by the legacy too. I mean, they'll just be, I've got, I've got people that have been involved in this case that are friends of mine that I think a lot of that said, I've, I was ever going to get involved in this for three years or five years. And then 30, 40 years later, they're still doing it. And that's not just on the disappearance side. That's on the, you know, the, the collector side, that's on the private side, that's on the, the legacy side. Rabbit hole really. So I want, I didn't want to call it vanished because we have the show, but you know, the show is vanished, but I wanted to have vanished or vanishing or something in the title to sort of relate it to the show, but I didn't want it to be vanished. So I thought, well, what is this? You know, what's the definition of this case? Well, this case is absolutely a rabbit hole because it swallows so many people whole. And you guys are familiar with uh, Darren Schaefer and the Cooper Vortex and everything. It's not unlike that. They don't call it the Cooper Vortex for nothing. It's because it's, you get involved in a case and it swallows you whole. Well, we don't have a really cool name like the Cooper Vortex for Amelia Earhart. So I thought, well, what can we do? What is this called on the very foundation, on, on the basic um, basic aspect of it? And it's a rabbit hole. That's exactly what it is. And I thought it just worked really well with, um, you know, looked good in print. I thought it worked really well with the subtitle. It's a longer subtitle. But I wanted to make sure I included Fred Noonan in the title because people forget about Fred Noonan. And he was a, a brave son of a bitch going on that thing. And he was the best in the world at what he did. And people often forget that there was a second person on that plane uh, who was re you know, recently remarried and who was trying to make a name for himself and finish out his career. So we wanted to call it, you know, we wanted to call it rabbit hole for that reason. And, and we wanted to include not only vanished or a version of that, but Earhart and Noonan in the title. So that's kind of what I came up with. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. 
do you lean a certain way yourself? Do you have like a percent a percentage breakdown in in your head of uh, what you think is most likely? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think uh, it depends on the day. Right now, I'll tell you because I just I feel like I'm sort of a, a good example of being able to be sort of bought and sold by all these theories individually. Like it's really compelling. It's really it's really uh, you know amazing how this all works. I think because we have the Atasca call logs, and this is really largely credit to Jen because she sort of can not convince me of it, but she sort of maybe see, you know, it's really how impressive these things are. You had people like Chief Radio Man uh, Leo Bellarts, who was on the Atasca, who was talking to Earhart. So he was speaking with the woman, you know, as she was going down. I mean, it was the last person to speak with her officially. And so I believe those call logs, and Jen puts it beautifully when she says it, uh, and I steal it all the time. It's like, if this is a modern day murder trial, these are the last text messages. This is the last communication that Earhart ever gives anyone ever officially. And I always say officially as a, as a caveat there. So I feel like, you know, they were, they were pulling her in. They, they kept writing something called a, they kept writing something called a S5 down. So S5 has to do with signal strength. At the time, that's how they detected how close an aircraft was or how close an incoming signal was depending, you know, depending on where you're at. And they measured it off S1 to S5. So S5, according to everybody I've spoken with, and we talk about this at ad nauseum in the book, it's, we really focus a, a lot on this because it's a, it's a big deal, is around 200 or, or, or even a little bit under miles out. And that's roughly what she was saying, around 200 miles out, around 100 miles out. So it's sort of, it's sort of jiving with what she's saying. I think, as a lot of the people in Crash and Sync will tell you, you have to listen to Amelia and what she was saying. Her words were saying, we must be on you, but cannot see you. So she's telling you that she thinks she's there. She thinks she's made it, uh, but she's not 100% sure. There's sort of, there's some confusion there. You know, we don't have, we don't have audio. The only people that ever had audio or listened to it were, was Bell Arts and the people on board, and we'll never have that. So we just have the written transcript of that. And I think you have to listen to Earhart. Those transcripts are, are awfully powerful. And I think until somebody presents something that's, and I say this a lot, but it's, it's true, earth shatteringly big. It can't just be like, well, we got, you know, some witnesses over here. Okay. Until you present something that's earth shatteringly big, you have to go with what she was saying. You have to go with, with what Earhart was saying. And I really feel like that is sort of, they have the benefit of the doubt when it comes to like, okay, now any theory that presents anything on Earhart has to prove like you know, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, as we talk about in the, uh, in the book and in the show, that this is actually what happened to them. Now, I also think that what Bill Snavely and Project Blue Angel are, are doing or have done in Buka with the aircraft wreckage that they found in, in Buka, I think that's sort of the elephant in the room that nobody talks about, uh, except, for, except for me uh, on, on social media and on, on podcasts and stuff. I feel like that's a, that's a piece of evidence that's screaming at us to go out there and properly, definitively determine what it is. You know, they know they've got a plane there at Buka. It sits in 150 feet of water, roughly. Now, it seems like this is a slam dunk. But on, like, if you go back to what I was talking about, about deep water and deep ocean and how pristine it can sort of like, it can sort of uh, keep wreckages in, in really good shape. This area of Buka is one of the most unstable nautical environments on the face of the earth. It's basically on this, this embankment or the bottom of this embankment wrapped in about three to four feet of coral. It's the ghost of an air shell. So you, they're down there with a beyond a shoestring budget, fully funded by Bill Snavely himself, 
uh, multiple times. And they're down there with little air power jackhammers and very rudimentary equipment trying to get anything they can get off this plane. And they've got this landing light lens that they found um, on Buka One, the first trip down there. And they feel like, you know, it, it, they've, they've measured it up. They've, they've put it on other Electras and it seems to match. But I mean, we've had that happen before in this case. And it turns out maybe it's not so good of a match. And so Bill is not relying. So he's not leaning everything that he's got on that. He wants DNA. He wants to prove substantially that this is Earhart and Noonan, in fact, in this wreckage. Uh, there's potentially bones there. Who knows what they're going to find because it's, it's such a difficult wreckage to investigate. Now, I will tell you, and I, I wish I could, I could say more. I will have the other people that will, I, I promise, I promise you'll get them on your show so you can talk with them because they'll know more. There is some really fun stuff with Buka coming up. Um, that I will hopefully be able to talk about um, in, in the near future once they sort of get everything squared away. Buka's in the middle of a civil war right now. It's a very unstable place uh, for anything to happen over there. They have to get full permission from the chiefs, from the elders, from the villages there. Buka is not about necessarily um, you know, keeping the aircraft there, but they are about trying to bring infrastructure to their location there. And I think that if, if they were to go out there Snavely and his team and pull up, let's say an engine or a piece of it, uh, even a spark plug off an engine that they can match with a part. Like that's it. That's, that's, that's checkmate at that point. And I think what would happen there is you'd then have to do a lot of political negotiation to try to pull anything out of that plane or out of that wreckage, out of that water and keep it, bring it back to the U S on our very own show. The current president of Purdue, Mitch Daniels, who I have an immense amount of respect for, who was an awesome guest really made the earth shattering sort of declaration that the whole of the project and the plane is a Purdue mission. So whoever finds it belongs to them. And that's a pretty powerful statement to make when you consider that this wreckage is all over the world, depending on who you believe it's in, it's at Nicomororo. It's in, it's in the Marshall islands in Saipan. It's in, you know, 18,000 feet of water. It's at Buka. It's at all, it's at all these different places. So whoever finds it is going to have to deal with that fallout. And it's, it's, I don't envy them, but they sort of have to be, be her biographer. And that's sort of the position that Snavely's in. If he's right, you know, he's, it's like that guy, it's, it's like Indiana Jones, Indy, they're digging in the wrong place. Like everybody's talking about going and searching one spot and he's looking at an area that's never really been touched or searched. And of course you have the detractors, people that believe that's that he's, there's no way he's right, but what if he's right? And that's why I feel like nobody's produced. Everybody's struck out. This guy's got a body, essentially. This aircraft is a third body. There's three bodies in this case. And we talk about this in the book too. There's Earhart's, there's Noonan's, and there's that Electra. And everybody's looking for that Electra. And imagine if you're investigating a crime scene and there's a missing body and your partner finds a, finds a body three miles away from the crime scene. Are you just going to ignore that body or are you going to go look at that body? Because that's a pretty big deal. Snavely's got a body. And that's pretty amazing. And whether he's right or wrong, and that sort of goes back to that breath of fresh air I was talking about, he's always publicly said, hey, if I'm wrong, I'm happy to say we struck out and it's wrong. But I still want to tell the story of whoever was flying that aircraft, because it shouldn't take an icon to tell a story like that. And somebody died in that aircraft and somebody's got one hell of a story. And if it's not Earhart, then it's somebody else that we need to determine who, you know, whose story that is. And if it is Earhart, it's the Holy Grail. So I think those two on any given day for me sort of go neck and neck 
I don't discount Japanese capture. I don't discount uh, repatriation. Irene Bolum. I don't discount you know any of that other Nicomaroro castaway. I mean, there's some stuff that's sort of been debunked and sort of it's been done to death, so to speak. But it's all on the table at this point. It's all on the table because nobody's produced. So and those you said are my that two. This, you said that this gentleman is uh, funding that whole expedition. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He had a, uh, so he funded the first one out of pocket and uh, he, he funded uh, the second one. He, he did do a GoFundMe for it. Um, and they think they raised about 3000 bucks, which went to bringing Mike Orange and one of the ROVs over from Boxfish Research who helped do the ROV footage for the second one. Other than that, he's entirely funded it himself. And that's also sort of a breath of fresh air because who in this case um, you know, there's, there's a few, but like to that degree, we're talking like two, $300,000 who to that, to, in this case, puts their money where their mouth is like that. Uh, he's really the only one that I'm aware of that does it to that degree. There's people that have certainly bled money out on this. And there's, there's certainly people that, you know, a lot of people would say make money off this case and, you know, whatever you believe personally, that's, that's up to you. And that's sort of always been the position. We talk about the case. We do color commentary. We give our thoughts much like I'm doing now. But really, I'm, I'm a nobody here. Like, you know, really the, the, the jury or the people that are the jury that we sort of preach to and talk to are the people that are reading the book, that are listening to the podcast. If you're sitting in a jury box and you're hearing evidence on all these different theories, what is going to sell you? What are you going to convict on? What are you going to say, this is actually what happened to her? Or no, this is actually, it's just like history wrote. It's crash and sink. She crashed in the ocean. She ran out of fuel. There was a bunch of shit that happened that went wrong. And they couldn't anticipate it. And they just had a really bad day. It could be that simple. Like Brian Dunning in the book, he says, it's not sexy, but it's there. It's, it's, it's not as extravagant, but it's there. And it's, it's real. And that's, that's what you've come down to. You know? So who knows where we're at at this point? It's a crapshoot. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the times the solutions to these cold cases isn't sexy. It's yeah. brutal and, and, and depressing and very realistic. Like you said, they just, they had a bad day in the air. That's not yeah. sexy at all, but that is yeah. about as realistic as, as it gets. They yeah. planes crash and they were in a plane that crashed, you know, that, that could be one of those solutions. Um, and you probably get this question all the time and I apologize, but, at what point did you realize that this was going to be your case? When did you get started on Amelia Earhart? Uh, so when I was, yeah, when I was really young, it, 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 it all started for me when I was young. I did a, a history day project for her on her and I, I picked her sort of by default because I, I, there's a there's a picture. If you Google her, she's got her hands on her hips. She's got the bomber jacket that she slept in to like make feel more old, you know, when she got it. And, you know, there's a really cool story to that. Um but yeah, it started in third grade. I did a history day project on her. I just kept coming back to it because I was so fascinated. Even as a kid with the legacy, I, I, I had like a, you know, shows my ignorance, but it really the, the naivete of like of every of every kid. I just thought she flew off into the sunset. I thought like, OK, that was she did everything she could do. There's nothing left to prove. Exit stage left. That's basically what, what I thought when I was a kid. And so I, I sort of I sort of still have like a little bit of that, you know, and it's, it's I think it has to do a lot with my son is like he's, he's only 12 now. and He's sort of grown up on this thing. But I sort of have a little bit of that, that feeling still. But I always went back to her, always. And, and oddly enough, after high school, after college, there was a, a lull where I didn't really look at the case or do anything. And, and I think it started up again in, gosh, probably 2007, 2008, um, you know, when I first started doing like a lot of like what I call pre-research. Like I didn't want to reach out to anybody with, with no knowledge uh, or limited knowledge. I wanted to have some kind of a foundational knowledge, but I didn't want to have so much 
that it came across as like just, you know, one guy trying to be an expert interviewing other people's. I wanted to sort of represent the audience and kind of what we're going to do for what would become Chasing Earhart. And that was interviewing these people, learning about these cases in really in the same real time format that the audience was learning about them, uh, learning about it, I should say. And uh, that's sort of always been my position. And, and I've always it's always come back to Earhart, no matter what I do. Anytime I do something venture wise or new, it always starts with Earhart. You know, that's kind of how it is with me. What is next? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, DB Cooper is next, actually. Uh, uh. So, yeah. Uh, DB Cooper is next. So uh, the uh, the plan is, and this is, I, I've learned this over the ca- the course of the last, especially the last like six months of my life. You can plan all you want, but life doesn't really care about your plans. It's one of those situations where like at any time those plans could change and something could, could just totally, get, you know, provide a 180 where you have to kind of you know, change the, change the course. But right now, <laughs> DB Cooper is, is book two. And that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to basically do the same formula with a lot of the, the case, all the cases that we cover and most of the cases that we cover and Cooper, the plan is to put the DB Cooper book out on the one year anniversary of the original show, which is November 24th, Thanksgiving Eve. And then of course the, the 51st anniversary of the DB Cooper skyjacking. And that's going to be uh, a little different in the, in the sense that it's going to have a lot more new information, I'm hoping, in this book. This one is sort of that original written transcript with a bunch of like new retrospectives sort of peppered throughout the book. You know, the foreword, the, the preface, all that stuff to sort of make it shine and to sort of give it a, a presentation for listeners who have never heard the show and want to read it. Uh, but Cooper will have a lot more new information, hopefully, uh, from the people, not from me, but from the people that are involved in the case that I'm sort of trying to help. And hopefully they'll just serve as like, uh, as appetite wetters, that's what these books will be, and just kind of give people a good snapshot. Same same format of listening to a podcast and getting excited about something, but just in a book form. And we'll do Cooper next, then we'll do John Wilkes Booth, then we'll do Jack the Ripper, and then after that, I don't know. So hopefully that'll take us into the fall <laughs> autumn of, of next year, and we'll have three or four books out at that point. That's the Come plan. Come on. Come on, we yeah. need we need a, we need a full breakdown for the next half yeah. decade. Yeah, that's that's it. That's my business plan. That's my business continuity plan. That's uh that's everything I'm working on in case something were to happen and this doesn't work out. But hopefully, uh you know people will receive this book well and they'll they'll get something out of it and they'll uh they'll at least be you know entertained, informed, and most importantly they'll want to go and do their own research and go down their own rabbit hole with this case, whether they believe. Japanese capture is it like that's what happened I want to or there's a lot of uh, pieces of evidence that we talk about in this book that are not so it's not so well known in the Earhart case it's known if you're inside the case but if you're outside of it you've never heard of message in a bottle you've never heard of a lot of these things that we talk about in in the book and I think it's really um, very exciting uh, you know and it's a, it's a different sort of approach it definitely reads and consumes very differently than any Earhart book that's come before it I can at least say that. And so that's that's really kind of exciting. And I guess we'll find out in just a few days. Now, it is a um, uh, an inside joke here at Crawl Space Media that I also enjoy releasing things and announcing things on anniversaries, no matter how obscure. I'll, I'll literally right. look up National Day of and uh-huh. try to, you know, if we're doing an episode about a dentist who killed his patients, I will look up National Dentist Day yeah. and try to try to squeeze it in. Also, I love it. It's a very uh, lesser known fact that I enjoy odd shaped books. So, yeah, with with you. <laughs> well, you're going to have one having, coming at you. Are you go- yeah. is is rabbit hole going to be shaped like a plane? 
Ah, well, it would. I don't think so. It will be shaped like a plane, but it's it's it's. I'll tell you what. It feels that would be annoying to read. That, it would be tough to read that. You probably it'd probably be like two or three thousand pages if it was shaped like a plane. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a brick, man. I I, I held it. I don't have it. It's upstairs. Uh, but I I held it, and it's like, man, this is. You know, originally you start writing like, oh, this is probably going to be four or five hundred pages. That's a huge book, and then you realize it's double that, and you're like, holy shit. Um, wow. I can't, you know, but I didn't want to cut, we cut very little. I, I, I transcribed off the original raw audio recordings. So there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that's, or a few things I should say, not a bunch, but a few things that are, that are in the book that didn't, weren't in the original audio show. Um, and so it's, it's been really interesting, but it's, it's a brick man. And I didn't want to cut any fat. I wanted to cut as little as physically possible to really give people like, so like really one of my goals is like, wouldn't it be cool we're not going to record an audiobook of this because we've already got it, but wouldn't it be cool that you could just read along with it from the people that are actually, you know, telling the story, you know, the actual experts on the stand, you know, for the most part, the, the hardest part of the book was really just transforming it from something you hear to something you read. That, that was very difficult. And then also at the same time, trying to like make sure you, you don't take too much creative liberty so people can't be misrepresented and things of that nature. So that that's a tough uh, tough process to sort of like, okay, how can I rewrite the sentence where it, it, you know, it, it, someone can't accuse me of, of something uh, on it. And I really did a lot of work to try to make sure that we could do that, uh, that everybody could read their account and their stuff and their pages and be like, yeah, that's exactly what I said for the most part um, down to the letter. Um, if, if we can get it that far. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for hanging out with us here tonight and discussing your new book. I'm very excited to read it. It's a fascinating case and mystery and tell us where we can get it yeah so it's it's on amazon it's on barnes and noble right now it's it's if you want to get it directly from me if you want a signed copy i can i can do that my wife's working all that out and we have a, a website a portal called into the rabbit hole.net and you can go to that website and you can order a signed copy or unsigned if you want directly from me um, i should get my first copies here uh official ordered copies hopefully by around the second um or maybe early next week I'll send those out and uh, you can get get it there into the rabbit hole.net or Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And hopefully if we're lucky, maybe we'll do some, get it into some brick and mortar or some independent bookstores, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of and I'd love to love to have it there. So we'll see. Uh, only time will tell. We'll see how it's received. 